0: Welcome to the Off the Charts Football Podcast. I'm Matt Manicherry, and former NFL scout and now of Sports Info Solutions. We're going to change things up. Mark Simon is going to host, and I'm going to move over to the analyst chair as we preview the 2021 Football Rookie Handbook. Mark is formerly of ESPN and currently leads SIS in our efforts to communicate what we do to both the teams and the public, including hosting the SIS Baseball Podcast, Justin Stein from the Ops Department, of course, is our producer on both shows, and he's brought along some friends today. Mark, tell us who Justin brought along.
1: We're joined by co-authors Nathan Cooper and John Todd, who work with Matt on overseeing the publication of the Football Rookie Handbook. The other co-author, Alex Vigderman, will join us in our next episode. As we go through the book, I want to start with the big stories, the headlines. Uh, Nathan, can you list all the players who got the highest grade in the book? That would be a 7.0 grade or higher, signifying immediate Pro Bowl potential.
2: Yeah, we actually had seven players this year break that 7 threshold. Uh, and that begins with Trevor Lawrence, the, the guy that everyone's talking about. We had him at a 7-2 this year. Uh, and kind of behind him, Penesul, uh from Oregon also at a 7-2. Uh, we had Kyle Pitts from Florida at a 7-1. Jamar Chase from LSU at a 7-0, and then we have the three Alabama guys. Jalen Waddell at a 7-1, Patrick Sertan at a 7-0, and Najee Harris also at a 7-0. We feel pretty good about you know the class. It's loaded with uh, top-end talent, but also has good depth uh, throughout most of the positions as well.
1: Certainly top-end, certainly Alabama heavy uh, at the very top of the draft. John, are there one or two players who are folks-like maybe a little bit more than some of the more prominent draft experts?
3: Yeah, thanks for having us. We'll bring up a few guys later as we get into more specific topics um, as we go through each position, but a couple of random mentions are running back Kylan Hill from Mississippi State and Colvan Landon, the offensive lineman from Wisconsin. Hill was an opt-out in 2020, early in 2020, briefly played in Mike Leach's air raid offense, but before that, he led the SEC's regular season in rushing in 2019, impressive tackle breaker, manufactured zone yardage, good contact balance, power and burst, but he was scarcely used as a receiver. Um, then he come to 2020 in that aerated offense for the three games or so that he played, and he really flashed those skills. So we we put him pretty highly in the book just based on that limited experience. If he can prove that he can do those things on all three downs, he could be an impressive player. And then Colvin Lane is a guy that uh, not too many people are talking about in the offensive line class, uh, but he's a two-year starter for Wisconsin at left tackle, and he played really well there, other than his matchup against Chase Yelling that a lot of people remember. But we made the move to bump him inside to guard. Uh, He's got some iffy length, reactive quickness on the perimeter are going to be some things that might hinder him as a blindside guy in the NFL, but he's got that big body mauling mentality. He's got some traits that we think might project well inside to a power scheme at guard.
1: Going back to Hill, I saw that one uh, draft Nick had him outside the top 10 in running backs, but as we said, we have him considerably higher than that. Matt, is there anyone that we might rate a little lower than some of the experts?
0: Yeah, you know, one guy that comes to mind, and I don't, I don't think we necessarily have him rated low, but uh, by virtue of him being the third ranked wide receiver in the book, I think it's it's going to be eye catching to people that Devontae Smith comes in at number three. Uh, it might not be totally shocking for some people to see number two, but I think number three might be interesting. But it's really a reflection on on the two guys that are above him there, his teammate Jalen Waddle, and somebody we didn't see this year, Jamar Chase. Sorry for obviously from LSU. Who you know, if we look back a year ago now, Jamar Chase outperformed Justin Jefferson a year ago at LSU. So if you kind of extrapolate that to what Justin Jefferson did in his rookie year, those are two special guys, but Devontae Smith. It's not that we really have any uh, grave concerns about him. A six point nine final grade is a really good final grade. That's a starting number one wide receiver on an NFL team. Um, but you know, in terms of the concerns, he's thin, he's frail. We've all seen all that. So the ability to get off press is a concern. But you're talking about a guy here who performed in Alabama's offense, had thirty six percent target share this year. That's six point nine targets above expectation, that 6.9 targets per 100 that he would get over what we would expect from a receiver who ran the routes that he ran in, in their system. So even amongst all of the talent on his team, he's still a guy that, that commanded that much of the ball. So not to say that we're low on him, but I think he's one guy that might stand out as, as people would have expected to be probably the number one or at least number two wide receiver. Nate and John, are there any guys that you guys would mention also that you think we're a little bit lower on?
3: Yeah, I think an interesting one is Micah Parsons. I mean, everybody talks about him really at the top end of the draft, and, and we do still have him as a six-seven starting will for us. So, again, it's it's a situation where we don't necessarily think of him as, as a bad player by any means, but we just have him ranked a bit lower than uh, behind some other linebackers that maybe some other people don't have. Um, we've got him as an athletic, rangy, run-and-chase guy, but he currently lacks the coverage instincts of some of the other wills uh, to make an impact on passing downs like that. We think he's going to be ready to play run defense. He's got the blitz instincts. Uh, And he's got some mic flexibility that we think will get him on the field early, but it might take him some time to develop those instincts and zone coverage. And he has got limited experience in man. So it's really just kind of an athletic projection for us at this point.
2: Yeah. And one other guy, uh, Marvin, Marvin Wilson from Florida State. Uh, Interesting guy. He's he's strong, plays with good body control, relentless in getting to the quarterback. But his production dip from last year to this year uh, is what we um, basically rank him so low for. Uh he had twenty four pressures and five sacks in twenty nineteen as an interior defensive lineman and only had eight and one sack uh in twenty twenty. So the the production dip was huge there. Uh if he came out after twenty nineteen, he's probably a first round pick. We still grade him as a six five, which is still uh you know, a solid grade there. But he's our ninth ranked uh defensive tackle. So that's probably a little bit lower than maybe some people have him.
1: Shows that there's a probably a good amount of talent at that position. Yeah. The Football Rookie Handbook can be purchased online, activesports.com. You can order it now wherever books are sold. New this year, Kindle uh, version that you can check out. Let's talk about how the book comes together and how the scouting operation at Sports Info Solutions works. Uh, Matt, just give us an overview of the latter there. How does SIS put together its scouting operation?
0: Yeah, uh, we all know about the company, the charting operation, the R&D team, all that kind of stuff that makes up the stats, but the scouting operation is really built just like an NFL team. That's obviously my background with the Saints and then the Browns, and we've really built up our scouting operation in the image of an NFL team. Um, Obviously, there are going to be some differences in terms of the way things are organized, but really, the biggest difference is that we're just much bigger we'll we'll have you know 50 odd contributors to the book in terms of all the people that are contributing from the scouting side and that's obviously many more than you'll see when when most scouting departments you know max out at like a dozen people on the NFL side so we've got a lot more people and obviously we're doing all of our work through the video so that's the other key aspect i think that's about 90% of evaluating players in general for NFL teams is is really through uh, what you can glean from the video, from the statistics, the performance on the field, what we study. But for us, that's that's kind of completely, that's, that's all we are. We're not going in there and, and checking in on character reports or anything like that. So the operation, me, John and Nate, the guys that you have right here on the podcast with us, we run what's called Scout School. And in September, we start weekly classes where we go through one position each week And we talk about how to scout that position. And that starts with uh, our grading rubrics for each position. We have different critical and positional factors, and we try to calibrate to make sure we're all on the same page so that when I say, this guy's got a seven for speed, I know that's the same thing that it means to Nate, and it's the same thing that it means to all of our scouts. So uh, we spend a lot of time trying to calibrate, trying to make sure that we're looking for the right things that fit our scouting scales. And then people are contributing reports throughout the season as we go through. Um, and it all filters through John and Nate. They are the scouting directors, and it's really their process at this point. And they they run things from there. They divide the country in half. They do the cross checks based on that. We'll also assign cross-checks as needed as they come up. And we work through um, and all the way through until the beginning of the handbook. You know, right when we released the handbook here in February right now, we we uh, shipped it off to the publisher, what, 10 days ago now? And this is our February draft board. This is what our board looks like before all the mess that gets involved with the combine and usual years and the pro days and all of the different people get their, get their hands in the cookie jar and mess things up. This is the pure scouting evaluation. So this is kind of my favorite draft board that comes out of uh, through all the process and basically through the evaluation and the cross check process, we let the, we let the process play out and that's what makes the, the grades that you see in the book.
1: Based specifically on playing and uh, scout school you mentioned for those that are interested in working for sports info solutions check our website check our careers page down the road there will be uh, job listings for the football uh, video scouts there all right nathan and john uh explain to us the the other end of how things come together in terms of putting the scouting reports together for the book
2: yeah, actually, this year, uh, this past year, we started doing some summer scouting for the first time. There was about five of us that kind of got a head start on the 2021 class. Uh, we ended up getting about 90 players done. So it was a really good start to the season, um, you know, going into the regular season. Uh, as Matt sort of mentioned uh, a little bit, you know, we normally have about 50 or 60 guys uh, working on this. We, we usually get about 50 plus uh, first year video scouts. Um, but we were a little shorthanded this year uh, with everything going on. So many canceled games. I think we ended the season with about 35 first-year video scouts. So we were a little bit shorthanded this year uh, in trying to get everything done. And when we actually start building our our you know lists of of guys, we usually start the previous March. You know, we start getting these these players on our list. We had about 600 players on our list this year. And the tough part this year was the rule of giving players an extra year of eligibility. Uh, that sort of threw a wrench in things. Uh, we had over 100 players that actually we had reports on with most of those being seniors, but decided to go back to school. Uh, so that kind of threw a wrench in things. But then. Uh, you know, we still had a lot of players that we had to work with as well. Uh, and then something that Matt also brought up, you know, players with, uh, you know, we get surprising grades with maybe higher or lower than we thought, um, or someone we think could get written up at different positions. Uh, we assigned multiple scouts, uh, to these sort of players, uh, to try to get different looks on these guys, you know, counting everything. We ended up getting over 750 reports or grades back on players this year. Uh, it really helped, you know, John and I get a thorough look at these guys, and really get a sense of, of who we wanted in the book this year. And now I'll let John kind of explain a little bit more where we went from there.
3: Yeah. So that's the whole process through the season, uh, through the summer and the season this year. Then you get down to January and February now, which what we've been doing for the past month and a half is taking all those reports and finalizing them. As we say, Matt alluded to it, Nate and I split up the conferences 50, 50 uh, Nate does like sec East ACC big 12. I do the sec West PAC 12, big 10 we split up the group of five conferences and everything. Small schools, and those are the the conferences that we're responsible for finalizing these players. And then, as Matt, uh, as Nate talked about, we uh, a lot of these players have two reports on them, so uh, it's much easier said than done. But a lot of these guys, we need to take the two reports that were submitted by two different scouts, um, hopefully seeing things similarly, but often they don't. And uh, and trying to get a clear picture of who the assignees think those player that player is, kind of merge these grades together, get a picture of, of what they're talking about. Sometimes they're wildly different. A lot of the time we need to watch film ourselves to kind of break some ties and things. And then we work hard through scout school throughout the year to make sure everybody's on the same page as far as language goes. Good means good, sufficient means sufficient, things like that. So at the end of the year, it culminates in in a, a lot of work the past month and a half to make sure these things get finalized into one final report that still reads in the voice that both scouts might, we're hoping would sound like.
0: John, you just said something that uh, I want to go back to because there was kind of a whole lot of process there, but then you said good means good and sufficient means sufficient. Can you explain what that means? Because I think that's really at the core of understanding how we create players.
3: Absolutely. It's a core thing for scouting in general, uh, for any scouting organization, and ours is no different, that uh, it's really important to get everybody within your organization on the same page in terms of language of what we're talking about. So we we grade these players on a one through nine scale, these trait factors So every Um, trait,
0: a quarterback's accuracy, both short and long, it's getting graded on this one through nine scale, Uh, the play speed at any different position, pass rush, get off, the ability to get off the line of scrimmage, all this kind of stuff. It's graded on a one through nine scale that we're really careful to calibrate.
3: Yeah. And scout school is a lot of teaching scouts how to look for things. It's teaching the template of how we write reports. But then a big part of it is understanding what is good in the NFL, what plays in the NFL, five plays, five is sufficient, we're looking for good, very good is seven, we're looking for all these things, making sure that what I see as a good is the same as what you see as a good. Naturally, everybody's going to have a different opinion of what is and isn't good accuracy. But as long as we have a baseline understanding of what that six number is, then we can work off of that and we can understand each other's differences in opinion.
0: I think any good scouting department, if you're having anything like a cheeseburger or a slice of pizza, you should be able to put it on the one through nine scale and be on the same page. You might not always agree with your evaluation of that slice of pizza, but we we at least got to have the same language as we're discussing it.
1: And essentially what we've created here ultimately is a simulation of what it's like to work for an NFL team, right?
0: Uh, Yeah, you can say that. Um, What we're doing is a very similar process to what NFL teams do. Our scout scale is based on... More kind of the the quote unquote Patriots method, which is what I did under Mike Lombardi in Cleveland, but it also has elements of what I learned from New Orleans and it has elements that John and Nathan and other scouts have brought to the table over the years. So we're, you know, the one thing that we do as a scouting department, as a company is we try to get better every day. And so uh, the scale is going to change a little bit from year to year. It's not going to change a lot, but we're always updating and we're always reviewing. This is big this time of year. We got to see what plays in the NFL and make sure that we're calibrating our valuations to what actually plays. So, you know, you said, I think simulation. I don't know if that's the word that I would use, but yeah, it's very similar.
1: Okay. One other thing before we get to players can you explain the horizontal draft board and the grading scale? Because different people have different ways of rating players. You'll see some draft knicks will say first-round pick, second-round pick, they'll label them that way. We didn't do that. So explain the horizontal draft board.
0: Yeah, I mean, you really said it. The horizontal draft board is what's key here. We're all used to thinking about things from top to bottom, right? We rank our list. If 250 players get drafted, we rank them 1 through 250. And people are are pretty... Familiar with that. The other thing that happens is on draft day, when people actually get picked, we find out that this guy was a first round pick, this guy was a third round pick. So people are kind of accustomed to talking about things that way. But what I learned through my years in the league is that it's total nonsense for two scouts to come along and say, this running back's a second round running back, or this linebacker's a fifth round linebacker. What does that mean exactly? Is there any context for what a fifth rounder looks like that year? Like, how about the fact that we're in 2021? And the nature of the draft class and the type of players that are being declaring as eligible versus not is way different than what we would normally find. As different as the 2020 season was, this sort of draft class is, has got all kinds of quirks in it like that. How do you build that into a grading scale that looks at things as a first rounder, second rounder, third rounder? It just doesn't, it doesn't breed consistency. And what we're really trying to do, as I kind of mentioned before, is get that consistency. So the way that we do things, is we don't try to say this guy's a first rounder, this guy's a third rounder. We say what his role is going to be on our team. What is he going to be at the beginning of his second season? Is he going to be a starting level player that that elevates our team, that the other team when they're game planning is circling him on the depth chart? Is he going to be a blue chip level player, that seven zero and above level player, who's going to step on the field from day one and be somebody that the other team has to account for at all times? Is this just a situational starter, somebody in kind of the low sixes range, or a backup in the, in the fives? So we put all these players into their different categories, but in order to understand the value of a running back that has a 6.5 final grade and a tight end that has a 6-point final grade and a, and a free safety that has a 6.4 final grade, we have to understand what all of those grades actually mean and what they are is how they fit onto our team. So we can't just lay things out from top to bottom and just say, uh, vertically, let's stack these guys from one to 250. We need to kind of think of it both vertically and horizontally. So in addition to going from best to worst from top to bottom, our draft board lays out horizontally where it goes position by position. And this way you can see, you know, while it's easy to look at rankings and, okay, this guy's ranked higher than that guy and all that, that's not really how our system is designed. Our system is designed to put guys into the tiers, into these sort of buckets of what we expect them to contribute on the next level. And then we can walk into draft day and say, we understand, I'm not a proponent of needs based drafting, but we can say, we understand where the strengths and weaknesses are, in our, rest, our roster are, we understand the strengths and weaknesses of this particular draft class. I'll tell you one thing that comes up with every single draft class I've ever been a part of, and it's probably more true, I think at receiver now more than ever, receivers and running backs exist. Right. You get to the end of the draft and you might have had relatively even numbers of players at different positions throughout and and thought that your draft board was balanced. But when you get to the fifth, sixth, seventh round, you're going to have tons of running backs and you're going to have tons of receivers left there on the board with grades that are better than than a lot of other players. But um, when you look across that board, you're not going to see that at the safety position, right? You're not going to see that with the true pass rushing defensive ends. You're not going to see that with a cover corner that can play man coverage. So the horizontal grading board is our way of understanding positional value And it's positional value that we assign before the season. We assign these roles. We decide what the value of the role is on our team. And then we let the draft board do the rest of the work. So um, I highly recommend it. We go into it in the book this year. It's in the introduction. We talk about the horizontal draft board. And you can see for yourself how it kind of works and how it lays out right in there in the first few pages of the book.
1: The 2021 SIS Football Rookie Handbook is coming soon. Featuring scouting reports on more than 250 players entering the NFL in 2021, the handbook is a must-read for football fans. The book is written as if you, the reader, are one of the team's decision-makers. We capture every strength and weakness both through scouting and statistical analysis, and we've got the most detailed injury information in the scouting industry. The handbook also features essays on important football all topics, and provides an in-depth take from the perspective of every position on the field. New this year, it will be available on Kindle. To order the Football Rookie Handbook, go to www.actasports.com or wherever books are sold. All right, let's zoom in on some players, uh, since I think that's what a lot of people are, are listening for. We've already mentioned that Trevor Lawrence scored a 7-2. We described him in the book as a, trans- a transcendent talent that speaks for itself people know who he is. Let's talk about the three quarterbacks behind him. Justin Fields, Zach Wilson, Trey Lance. What is your overall take? Uh, I know each of you took one guy here. So uh, Matt, start us off with Justin Fields.
0: Yeah, Justin Fields is our top guy of those three. You see a lot of really uh, excellent physical traits when you look at somebody like Justin Fields. So when you look kind of across the board, at, at you put together the different attributes that you want from a quarterback. He's got excellent stature, He's got the arm strength. He's got athleticism for days. This is a guy that on the field at Ohio state stands out as an athlete and looks like he could be a professional athlete in multiple sports, just based on the, on, on his kind of physical ability. So you love all of that stuff about him. And really, I mean, Trevor Lawrence, I think physically is probably a lot of similar things to Justin Fields, but you just don't see any of the warts that you get with Justin Fields with Lawrence. He's, he's already got so much polish to him. So that's, that's what separates those guys to me. Fields you look at, and I think he could be a top quarterback in the NFL. If things go right for him, if he learns to slow down his processing, if he can uh, get through his reads and hang in the pocket and be more of a run to throw guy, as opposed to at this point in his career, he really runs to run. Once he gets past that second read, the ball is coming down. And now, trust me, he's dangerous with that ball in his hand. He's not quite the speed of Lamar Jackson, Kyler Murray, but he's on that next tier right below them. Really, really dangerous with the ball in his hands makes people miss. Like I said, he's an athlete where he could be a professional athlete in multiple sports. And he's got the stature to go with it too. So when he runs out of the pocket, this isn't going to be a Tua situation where you're worried about him taking a hit. Um, he's got the build and he's got that body type where, where you feel good about him in those situations. So I think a lot of years, a 6.9 final grade is really an outstanding final grade from a quarterback. The only thing keeping him from that 7.0 level for me is that I don't think he walks in as an ideal starter on day one. I think I'd rather have the year uh, to let him groom, but I don't think he would be lost on day one out there at all. He's got advantages in his game, like we saw with Justin Herbert last year. Justin Herbert, because of the athleticism, dictates a lot of stuff coverage-wise, you're going to see that with Justin Fields. It's going to be really difficult to play two deep safeties against him because he will make you pay for that. So he's a matchup problem. I think he's got all kinds of upside. I think the floor is a little bit lower on him than maybe some other players. You know, Trevor Lawrence has a much higher floor than a Justin Fields. But if things go right for Fields, I think he could be a top quarterback in the league.
3: Zach Wilson's right there with Justin Fields for us. They're both six nines, and they are kind of similar to a degree uh, with that low floor, kind of high variance type of guy. But I do think the big thing that separates them is that polish that Matt talked about with Justin Fields. Zach Wilson's super athletic, great mobility, throws well on the move. I think maybe the best thing about him, he has that coveted ability to make plays off schedule, which is so uh, valued these days in the NFL. Uh, Being able to extend plays outside the pocket, throw on the move, work through his progressions, keep plays alive, great arm strength to throw downfield and everything. Definitely more of a fastball thrower every chance he gets, but he's got some deep touch. He was way up there in leaderboards for us on deep balls all year. And he holds the ball a bit low, but he's got a bit of a, a loop motion to it, but a really quick release, bit of a freelance type guy. Um, so he's definitely more of that high variance type of guy that we're looking at. But the negatives, he gets in trouble when he's trusting that arm talent too much. Not a huge fan of checkdowns. He's always looking to throw deep, dominant offense, but he played a weaker schedule. He really just broke out this past year, and he's a three-year starter. He's not just one of these guys that kind of came out of nowhere because he only started one year. He's been starting for three years and his biggest year of production was this season where he didn't play any Power 5 talent, played a bit of a weaker schedule, but it was such a dominant offense. And another note that, again, we don't take injuries into account for anything, but one separate note, our injury expert, John Veros is very concerned about his labral issues in both shoulders. So that'll be something that, uh, that we'll keep in mind as well. Hey, John, what a great point
0: that you bring up just with... 2020 was so weird, as if evaluating quarterbacks isn't hard enough already. All of the extra weirdness that goes into the schedule that they played, the way that uh, no team was ever really at full strength all year this past year, and they run a funky offense. All those things kind of make the evaluation a little bit more difficult on him.
2: Yeah, now let's get into Trey Lance a little bit. Fields and Wilson, like like you guys said, they're graded in at 6'9". Uh, Lance is our number four quarterback here, and we have him as a 6'6", uh, so there's a bit of a drop there. Uh, I actually watched nine games on Lance. Uh, he's fun to watch, but very frustrating. Um, he's flashy, shows some 7-0 potential, makes a lot of plays, which you know people love to see, but he's wildly inconsistent. Another one of those high ceiling low four type guys, you know, rated in uh, a little bit lower than those other two as well. Lacks some anticipation on his throws, uh, doesn't really throw his receivers open. Uh, something he'll have to do a lot of at the next level, so that's one thing that you know he's definitely gonna need to work on there. His release and follow through are a little inconsistent. And that leads to a lot of his inaccurate passes. Uh, if you actually take his full 2019 season and put it up with the 2020 stats of the other 15 guys who made the book, his catchable throw rate and on-target rate sit around ninth or 10th. Um, so definitely not in the, in the top uh, echelon there. But for what he does well, uh, you know, he throws a good deep ball, generates a lot of torque with his body, and that allows him to get a lot of velocity behind his ball uh, and make every throw on the field. And then the obvious one, whenever you watch him play, his ability as a runner. At about 6'3", 225 pounds, he's built like a running back, uh, and he runs like it too. Runs hard. He tries to run over guys. He's not a guy that's going to slide. If he gets drafted into a situation where he can sit for a couple years, maybe get used in certain packages, uh, he has enough traits to build around and become a starter in this league. But if he gets thrown into the fire early on in his career, I could see it being a little bit rough for him. He n- nine games of
0: watching him, and you know the guy that, that kind of – it's almost on the tip of your tongue as you're speaking there. I think everybody's almost waiting for you to say Josh Allen. Do you get Josh Allen vibes watching those nine ga- games from him? I know it was a different Josh Allen back at, back at Wyoming, but is that, I don't want to, I don't want to put comps into your mouth, but is that sort of maybe the success of Josh
2: Allen has probably made some money for Trey Lance? It's possible. Yeah. I, Josh Allen's probably not a guy that I would have thought about when you watch him, um, but he, they have a lot of similarities. You, you see the strong arm, not overly accurate, didn't play a ton and, uh, you know, didn't start a ton of games in college. Um, there's a lot of, you know, similarities there. Uh, so I could see a lot of people seeing that uh, and, and sort of comping that uh, together. But I wouldn't say that, uh, you know, those two are, are one and the same.
1: Fun to watch, but frustrating. That's an interesting description for any quarterback. So for those wondering, number five on the quarterback list, Mac Jones from Alabama, but let's move to wide receiver. And we talked before about Smith uh, winning the Heisman, but not being the number one receiver. Jalen Waddell, Jamar Chase, both ahead of him. Uh, Why don't we break those two guys down and give us a a little uh, taste of what we can expect from them. Uh, Nathan, start us off with Jalen Waddell.
2: Yeah, we're not obviously not discounting the fact that Devontae Smith had an outstanding year. Matt talked about it earlier. Uh, but when looking from a scouting perspective, we have Jalen Waddle coming, coming in as our number one receiver. Uh, if you look at the stats at the time of the injury, Smith was more of a high-volume type of guy. Had 38 catches, 12.7 yards per catch. But if you look at Waddle's numbers, he was more dynamic. He actually averaged 23 yards per catch on just 25 receptions. Uh, and that's not because Waddle's just a running deep, uh, deep kind of guy. He ran a very diverse route tree. And a big point with him is he averaged 10 yards after the catch per reception as well. Uh, we gave him a nine on the one to nine play uh, scale for play speed, which essentially means that's that's a rare trait. Uh, his speed is, is rare and that allows him to win not only after the catch, but also as an overall route runner in and out of breaks and be a playmaking threat nearly every time he touches the ball. And he also has strong hands. That's evidenced by his career, 94% on target catch rate. And he's a guy that he may not have the stat totals and volume that you see from most top end players at the position, uh, but his efficiency is
3: what makes him stand out above the rest. And then moving over to DeMar Chase, uh, I just think he has a few more elite traits than Devontae Smith does. Smith might be a better route runner, but Chase is more physically dominant with the ball in the air more dynamic after the catch. People forget, I mean, Chase didn't play this year um, and everybody says Devontae Smith had the greatest receiver year of all time, but Jamar Chase wasn't too far off that a year ago. Similar record-breaking offenses, both played in historic record-breaking offenses with elite quarterbacks, other talent around them. but his season seemed a bit less scheme-dependent and more self-manufactured from an individual talent perspective. Just one of the many examples, Devontae Smith had 29 screen receptions in 2020, and Jamar Chase only had five in 2019. So there's a bit of a difference there, but he's a sturdier build. He's younger. He's super young. Um, turns 21 just before the draft, so um, nothing against Smith by any means, but we think Jamar Chase has a bit more that see ball, get ball mentality, that physical attitude, breaking tackles after the catch, needs um, to work in his route running to get open a bit more before the catch, but his ability at the catch point and afterwards is, uh, is really elite just
0: wanted to say, you know, the rankings are one thing, but let's keep in mind, we're talking about these three receivers. They're all in our top 10 to 15 graded players overall. So it's not like we're hating on any of these guys in in any sort of a way.
1: Rashad Bateman, Tylan Wallace of Oklahoma State round out the top five. There are 48 receivers ranked. In the Football Rookie Handbook, and you can find them one to forty-eight in the book itself, which, as we mentioned, available now at active Sports and wherever books are sold. Let's move to running backs. What separates Najee Harris and Javante Williams? They're your top two guys there. They're both ahead of Travis Etienne from Clemson. Why is that?
3: Yeah, Nate'll talk about the Etienne factor here in a bit, but just to talk about Najee Harris and Javante Williams, the short of it is that they're the only two backs in this class that we think are ready-made for three downs right now. Um, Najee Harris was the workhorse for Alabama the past two years, got essentially every first team snap, uh, in that offense, despite all the talent in that running back room, despite all the five stars that they have, despite as much as you'd think that they'd want to rotate guys in and out and get everybody touches, Najee Harris truly never left the field until the game was a blowout. Great ball carry in any scheme, inside zone, outside zone, power schemes. He's a legitimate pass catcher, used in multiple ways. He's not just a check down guy. They used him on some unique routes and and schemed him some stuff in the past game. And he's got the technique and baseline ability to be a sound pass protector. He did that a few times. Moving over to Javante, he's a bit more stylistically specific as a north-south, inside playmaker, thumper type. A little less dynamic as a receiver, but he's got some receiving skills and he's a fantastic pass protector right now. First thing he's going to do in the NFL is pass protect. Much less tread on his tires than Najee Harris as well. He split carries with Michael Carter, who's also in our our really highly rated for us in in our running backs this year. And the biggest thing with Javante Williams, he's just a comically great tackle breaker. Um, He's got some ridiculous reps, elite clip of breaking tackles this past season. Neither one of these guys is truly an electric open field threat with the ball in their hands, like long speed, breaking away plays. uh, But they've got the every done mentality, physicality to carry the load of an offense.
1: Nick Chubb has led the NFL in yards after contact the last couple of years. Should we consider that Javante Williams could uh, wind up near the top of that kind of leaderboard?
3: It's interesting. He certainly played like it in college. Like I said, if, if he's got a, a lane to come at you in the open field, he's running over guys in the secondary, left and right. The interesting thing, the difference between him and Nick Chubb is that he's not built like this big tackle-breaking guy. He's got good size, but he's not a massive. Najee Harris is bigger than him. Um, Nick Chubb's got, obviously, those huge arms and everything. So he doesn't look like it. So there is a question about maybe is that physicality going to carry over to the next level? If he doesn't have that electricity in the open field, Uh, Is he going to be able to break tackles against professional grown men moving to the next level? But I do think that would possibly be his projection moving forward is a guy like that who can, if he can continue breaking tackles like this, pass protect like he can to stay on the field on all three downs, and then use some of that wiggle as well that he has when guys are expecting that physicality from him, he's going to be a really special back in the NFL.
0: Yeah, I think you said it. The key word, especially in our grading scale, is that three-down ability. Uh, Nate, how, how does Travis Etienne fit into it?
2: Yeah, we actually have ETN at number three. He's a six-six final grade, which basically means he's more of an early-down player. Uh, we don't see him as a as a three-down player right away. Uh, has a lot of what you look for in a running back. He has the speed, has the ability to make defenders miss, uh, and has the vision to create as a zone runner. But he he lacks a little bit of power, and he doesn't have you know much ability to be able to help out and pass pro, uh, which is really going to hold him back on third downs. Um, but with that said, he has the skills and potential really to be one of the more dynamic receivers out of the backfield as well. You know, he's one of the guys that, ha- you know, has come in with a lot of receptions, a lot of yards on, uh, you know, receiving yards out of the backfield coming out of college. So he really has that ability to to make plays, um, you know, in both the, the run game and the passing game. Um, but we really, you know, consider his pass pro uh, a little bit below uh, what we really needed to be for him to be a, a really impact three down player.
1: We could sit here for an hour and run through other offensive players. Are there any other guys on the offensive side that you want to spotlight because of their importance? We haven't really talked about Soule yet in the 7.2, other than to say that he has that rating. Uh, who do you guys want to bring up?
0: Yeah, I'll leave that to, to John to talk about that one. But the thing that comes to mind, and I touched on this before when we talked about the grading scale and the way that it works, that we predetermine before the season starts. We say, if you're going to fill this role, this is what grade we're going to assign to you. And part of the nature of that is that historically, once you get below that 6.7 grade, where we're talking about really a starting number two level wide receiver, a guy that can play on the outside or on the inside – we have a drop-off down to 6.4 as the next grade after that, which is really meant to be for a number three wide receiver, a starting number three type receiver. And the way that that has, ha- has developed over time has been that this, this kind of design of our grading scale, which is meant to show that we're not going to value somebody that's just a part-time player over every down players. All of a sudden, the combination of slots really becoming starters in the NFL – along with just how much receivers have, have an outsized importance in today's game, we're probably going to see at least a receiver taken on average for every NFL team this year, right? There'll be more than 32 I think drafted in the seventh rounds of this draft of the 48 that we wrote up in this book. So there's just tons of wide receivers. And, and part of what that ends up meaning is that guys that are kind of either inside only or outside only, and don't have as much flexibility in their roles, they sort of get pigeonholed into that 6.4 grade level. And there are a few guys and it starts with Kadarius Tony who were kind of victimized by this, this year. Nathan and John have been getting on me for a couple of years about this. We're probably going to adjust the grading scale next year to reflect this that um, just with the growing importance of slots and the need to be able to distinguish between really these you know 1a level slots and the 1B level slots, we're probably going to add a new grade to the grading scale next year just just to take care of that. So I transition over to uh, Nathan, uh, you know, Eskridge, I know is a guy that you're also really high on that got stuck at that 64 grading level.
2: Yeah, I'll talk about Eskridge. I'll leave uh, Tony for John here. Um, But Eskridge is right behind Tony uh, in our rankings here. And for anyone that watched him at the Senior Bowl, he showed a lot of what he can do. Uh, Another guy with a lot of speed and playmaking ability. There's a lot of those guys this year. But Eskridge is a little different than your regular, smaller, speedier receiver. Played against a lot of press coverage in college, um, so he knows how to win off the line. He runs good routes. He has strong hands, can make off-target catches, and then has the speed to win after the catch. Uh, he's the kind of guy that you know he can take ten-yard slant routes and take him the distance, you know, consistently. Uh, I watched him do it more than one time, uh, you know, in watching him play. Average fourteen point four yards per catch after the catch per reception, and then fourteen point eight yards per uh, target was tops in the country. So he definitely puts up good numbers, uh, and then also shows the athleticism. He even played corner in twenty nineteen. Uh, you know, the team needed him to play a little bit of corner. He played there for four games, uh, before he had a season ending injury, but was able to play some corner dynamic, you know, receiver, but also a dynamic, uh, returner as well.
3: And one of the, those, uh, you know, top returners in the class as well. And then Kadarius, Tony. Yeah, we, Matt touched on him there, wanted to get into a six, seven was looking for ways to kind of cheat the system and get him up there. I do think he has legitimate like third down running back flexibility, things like that, that you could really kind of get him on the field beyond just what you think of a six, four receiver would be, but I do think he needs to work inside to have those two-way goes inside, have more space to work within, to be a dynamic slot receiver. But that doesn't mean I don't like him at all. I, I love Kadarius Tony. He's converted Wildcat quarterback from high school, was really listed as an athlete the first couple of years at Florida under a different coaching staff and everything. Didn't break out until senior year, but he flashed early on. Um, I noticed him, first noticed him four years ago. So I was excited to break into him when he broke out this year. Short area twitch combined with the long speed combined with some bulk and toughness to finish kind of got an all from a slot perspective. My favorite thing about him is this ability to consistently open up the hips of these inside leverage defenders that are shading him to the inside. Their one job is to keep them from crossing their face. And he's still got the ability to head nod and juke and deke his way, open up their hips and crud across inside on slants and crossers. But he doesn't do this every, every down. He's definitely more of a guy who you can tell when he's in early progression, he doesn't have that length to match up on the perimeter Top competitions locked him down by staying patient through some of those extra movements and stems and that finesse stuff that he likes to do. Doesn't fight through contact on contested catches. He really requires to, to get that great separation early on, but um, he's going to be a real weapon as a slot, returner, backfield gadget player. Got the arm, obviously, from his high school for some trick plays and stuff. He's got really good vision as a ball carrier, patience behind blockers. Um, so he's going to be a special player. We just think he's got more of a restricted role uh, than some of those guys rated at six, seven and above.
1: And one other guy that we should mention, the guy got a 7-2 rating, which is as high as it gets here with Trevor Lawrence. Uh, Pene Sewell, uh, what are your impressions of him?
3: Pene Sewell is an elite tackle prospect, and he projects to left tackle, unlike some of the other top-rated guys we have there who we think are maybe better suited to right. He's right there with Trevor Lawrence as the best players in this class. He's as fun a guy I've watched on the offensive line. He's an incredible run and screen blocker, very good pass protector. Only concern is that my nitpicking issues with this game are that they're more in the passing game than the run game. But he played two years at Oregon as a teenager, uh, and he's just got so much room to grow. He's one of the youngest guys in this class, right there with Kyle Pitts, another one of the youngest guys in this class. Super dynamic tight end prospect. I can understand why some guys would want to call him an offensive weapon or a pass catcher or something like that instead of a tight end, but... Um, He's definitely not unusable as an inline blocker. He can play in the box. He works hard, shows plenty of interest. He's just not big enough to do that consistently. But he could legitimately have been graded as a receiver with how dynamic his pass catching skills going up against number one cornerbacks in the the SEC, winning his fair share of battles in those. It's super impressive how he can separate against those guys, let alone what he did to linebackers and safeties. He's just a super special talent. He's going to go super high in this draft.
1: One of the things that I really like about the book is that even for the guys that are the sevens, there are room to grow references throughout the book. So you learn every guy's kind of his Superman strengths, and then you've got the areas that the player can improve. All right, let's move to the defensive side. Edge rushers, there are seven players that we have graded six, seven, six, eight. These are guys that we classify as strong starter potential. How do we sort out one guy from the other?
2: Yeah, this edge class is deep this year. Has a lot of talent, uh, you know, at the top end and all the way through. Uh, like you said, we have seven guys at a six seven or above. But even further than that, we have seventeen guys with a six five or above. Um, so there's a lot of talent there. Uh, this year, our top edge defender is Jalen Phillips out of Miami with a six eight final grade, uh, and he's our only six eight. After starting at UCLA, then retiring and then transferring to Miami, he put up some big time numbers in 2020. And you know, we also have guys uh, at six seven, like Quitty Pay, Rashad Weaver, Quincy Roche. Uh, but the six seven that I want to highlight is our number two edge, actually, and that's Georgia's Aziz Ojolari. He would stand up or put his hand on the ground at Georgia. Was very productive either way. Uh, pass rush ability, meticulous fundamentals—those um, are the kind of things that set him apart. Very quick off the line and also gets good length with his first step into the backfield. Does a really good job basically resetting the line of scrimmage uh, and getting into the backfield and getting into offensive linemen very quickly. Uh, hands are some of the best in the class. He's he's strong, he's accurate with his hand placement, and nearly always is able to, to slap away the hands of the offensive linemen. He also has the, the ankle flexion and bend to get around the edge with ease. Um, that's something that you look for in, in edge rushers. Can they really get parallel to the to the ground and, and really get around that edge, dip under the offensive lineman, uh, and get into the backfield there? Uh, he's a guy who profiles as a stand-up outside linebacker at the next level, and he's going to definitely produce on all three downs for you You know, in the run game and in the pass game.
3: And a couple of the guys that Nate didn't mention there that I just want to touch on real quick here, these six sevens, and they're all six sevens that we're talking about here. So again, they're all very good players, but we kind of loosely rank them based on the guys that are more ready-made versus the guys that just have some upside potential that we think will get there if they put everything together. Again, one of the guys that wasn't messaged was Greg Rousseau there. A lot of guys have him a lot higher than this. We still have him in that six seven range, but rated a bit lower than some of these guys just because of, of his youth and inexperience, similar to Jason Owe, who's also in that same range. Both guys are super football young, but they've got freaky physical tools, really long. We're just willing to bet that they're going to put it all together by their second years in the league, whereas those higher-ranked players that Nate talked about may have a bit better chance at carving out a a significant year one role.
1: There are 31 edge rushers graded in this book. That's a lot of film. When you're watching an edge rusher, is there anything, just a a quick snapshot, a couple of quick hitters, uh, what are you watching for?
2: Yeah, you're starting off. You're looking for guys that, can, that are explosive off the line. You want guys that can really get into, get into the tackle, make their life difficult. Um, you're looking at the hand use, something that I mentioned a little bit. Uh, you know, looking at speed, quickness, you know, different pass rush moves. You're going to have guys that are really good speed rushers that get around the edge all the time. But then you're going to have guys who can, you know, throw in counter moves like spin moves, uh, you know, rips, uh, you know, outside inside moves, different things to, to really get the tackles guessing you know, where they're going to go, what they're going to do. And then also, you know, these guys might be asked to, uh, you know, cover out in the flats a little bit. They're not always going to be asked to rush the pass, or maybe they're going to drop into coverage a little bit. And then obviously, you know, the first couple downs, you know, of a possession, you're going to need to be able to play against the run. Uh, are these guys strong, uh, you know, to be able to set the edge, strong at the point of attack and, and really work these, um, the running backs back in and not really, uh, you know, give those guys the edge, uh, and get around the, you know, get around them and get to the sideline.
1: All right. Let's move on to corners in the book. Quote, Patrick Surtain has ideal size coverage, ability, and football intelligence to be one of the top cornerbacks in the league for years to come. What makes him so good? Why are you so impressed with him?
3: Sertan really excels in both press man and zone coverage which gives him that great scheme versatility that teams are looking for you can play him in any defense he's got the pedigree from his dad his dad was a pro bowler obviously and he's a three-year player in Nick Saban's defense three-year starter so um, he's got a lot of experience there in the pedigree very football smart sound technique production the competition level he's faced playing all these number one receivers that we've talked about he just checks a lot of boxes that you're looking for in a
0: yeah, I mean at corners are, are notoriously as as unbulletproof as prospects as you can get. We see corner performance goes wildly, swings from one direction to another from year to year. And you see some of that when you look at Sertan's stats, even even in college. And sometimes that's just a reflection of a guy being targeted so so little that on on the rare occasion when he does get a target, sometimes it's it's gonna run up the stats and make things look a little bit wonky. But with Sertan. Man, he makes me think of his father when you watch him. Uh, Patrick Sertan senior, thinking back to those old Dolphins defenses with Sam Madison, obviously Zach Thomas and Jason Taylor were, were kind of the headliners there. But those two corners were, were about as good of a pair as you had in the league for a while there. And Sertan was really, uh, the one that was the better of the two when they were kind of both at their peak. And you see similar things, you know, Patrick Sertan as an NFL senior never was somebody who jumped off with his athleticism where you said, Oh my gosh. And, His draft status kind of reflected that. Now, his son is going to get drafted a lot higher, but it's not because he's so different as an athlete. This isn't a four-three guy or anything like that. This is just a guy that's got good size. He's got good speed. And he's been a starter at Alabama who's been a lockdown guy who, like John said, is scheme versatile and is going to do everything you ask of him. So it's funny how physically you see somebody very similar. And while that was a kind of low draft status for his father, who just had an exceptional NFL career, I think he's going to reap the benefits of that. But man, if I had to bet on somebody, I'm betting on Patrick Patrick Sertan at the cornerback position.
2: Yeah. So our se- uh, you know, looking past Sertan, uh, our number two corner is actually JC Horn out of South Carolina, uh, strong press man corner shows a lot of good, uh, you know, very good ball skills, transition ability. Um, but I want to talk more about a, a more intriguing option and that's Virginia tech's Caleb Farley. Uh, and he actually ranks in at, num- at number three for us. Farley actually opted out of 2020, uh, but he showed enough in 2019 to get a six, eight final grade from us. Uh, Very good reactive athleticism and play speed are some of his best traits. And he gets a little aggressive with his eyes and zone coverage. But he has fluid hips, transitions easily with, with, with different receivers and man coverage, and he can play press or off uh, coverage as well. Um, very strong in press, uh, and then like I said, has the transition ability and reactive athleticism to win off as well. Uh, he's got all the tools you want in a corner. Uh, it'll be interesting to see you know, if the year off hurts him uh, when the season comes around, but he's a guy that is very intriguing, very athletic, uh, and has a lot of the tools that you look for in a first-round corner.
3: And then one more corner just to make a quick note on a guy is Greg Newsom from Northwestern. He's a guy who's kind of been getting some love a bit as the books come out lately, which is, which has been great because we've got him as our number four cornerback that, uh, that I'm glad that we took that stand on him. Topped a bunch of our leaderboards in 2020 and the tape backs it up. Hyper-competitive guy, great ball skills and instincts. He needs to cut down on the penalties, a bit too physical downfield. His play strength and durability, playing through minor injuries are some concerns, but he's another corner with a very well-rounded scheme, versatile skill set you could really sense his presence early in that Ohio state game. When he played, he shut down one side of the field uh, in that big matchup and then he got hurt and then everything opened up for Ohio state's offense after that. So um, he's an impact guy that we're, we're happy to have as our number four corner.
1: All right. Are there any other players that you would like to spotlight on defense?
3: Yeah, I got a, a couple of favorites that I'll mention here at the end. Ali McNeil and Paulson Adebo are two of the favorite players of mine in this class. Aleem McNeil is our number one nose tackle. So by position alone, he won't fit every team's defense or be drafted as highly as some other guys with his grade. We give him a 6'8". Obviously, a 6'8 nose tackle is going to be a lot different than a 6'8 receiver or tight end or something like that. But he knows his limitations and he excels within that role. Super quick hands over centers to win off the snap. He's got the anchor strength, the stalemate double teams, and the upfield disruptiveness to one gap if you need to. Wide body, not too ranger athletic, although he did play running back and even outfielder in high school. So at least he used to be mobile, but uh, he's put on some weight in college and uh, he's a bit restricted with how to use him now. But within the box, he's going to be a headache for offensive lines. And then Paulson Adebo, people forget about him. He missed the end of the 2019 season, then opted out of 2020, but he's got as impressive on-ball production as you will find in a collegiate cornerback through his one and a half seasons of playing eight picks over 25 pass breakups and only 21 starts very long frame good closing speed football intelligence he might be a candidate to be moved to safety because he isn't the quickest in short areas we have him in that six four range of cornerbacks where again similar to receivers he's a bit more role specific as an inside versus outside guy he's going to be only the outside Uh, but I could see a heavy zone defense falling in love with him and taking him earlier than most expect to be a starting outside zone corner for somebody
2: yeah, and I just have three guys to to quickly hit on as well. Uh, Carlos Basham, Jabril Cox, and Darius Washington. These are fun guys to watch. Uh, starting with Basham, he came in at a 6'6 final grade, and he's our eighth-ranked edge. So he's right below all those 6'7s that we just talked about. Uh, one of the big questions for him is his motor. In 2019, it was very hot and cold, but it improved in 2020. And when his motor runs hot, he's very tough to block. Uh, he's strong at the point of attack. He's relentless in getting to the quarterback and he basically has a skill set and size to really play all over the defensive line. Uh, he can be a pass rusher who can rush from diff- different spots uh, across the line there and kind of go up against different offensive linemen. Uh, with Jabril Cox, he started his career at North Dakota State, then finished it in 2020 at LSU. He's one of the best coverage linebackers in this class. He led all wills who made the book in total points per game and pass coverage total points per game. Uh, and his name was littered throughout uh, numerous others as well very rangy disruptive in zone coverage and athletic enough to cover backs and tight ends with ease as well. Uh, and that's a lot of why he's our number five ranked will with a six, six final grade. Uh, and then the last guy I want to talk, touch on Ardarius Darius Washington uh, safety out of TCU. Uh, He's one of the smaller guys in the book, uh, 5'7", 175 pounds, but he plays much bigger than that. Three-level player who has the speed and range to fly around and make plays near the line or on the back end. Um, He's a very twitchy athlete, communicates well from the safety position. Uh, His coverage skills allow him to guard receivers really anywhere from the speedy slot receivers all the way to the bigger tight ends. Um, His yards per target against uh, was only 2.6, which tied him for the league among safeties uh, that were in this year's book. He's, he's fun to watch, and you could really see his name going off the board probably early in day two.
1: From Ardarius, Washington to Trevor Lawrence, small to big, we've got them all covered in the Football Rookie Handbook. And we should note that you can watch some of the film that John and Nate watched for the draft with more detailed reports on our YouTube page. You can find that, go to YouTube and uh, Sports Info Solutions there. Uh, we'll be talking to Alex Vigderman about the math behind the book and the statistical rankings of different players and the statistics that we use in our next episode. Uh, John and Nathan, thank you, guys. This wraps up off the charts for this week. Thank you for listening. You can find us on Twitter at sports info underscore SIS. The Football Rookie Handbook is in final stages of printing now and will ship in a matter of days. Order your copy wherever you buy books. The best deal is through our publisher at actosports.com. For Matt Manicharian and our producer Justin Stein, thanks to our guests, John Todd and Nathan Cooper. I'm Mark Simon. Thank you for joining us for the latest episode of the Off the Charts Football Podcast.